Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, we ask you today, we would be disciples of the word. Your word comforts us, it strengthens us, it is a sure foundation for our feet. Lord, I pray that I will be given the grace to get out of the way. We want to watch you and listen to you and follow you. Jesus, you are our Lord. You are our rabbi. You are our risen risen king. Come now, teach us. We're going to listen to you on on that evening. As you counsel your disciples, teach us to understand. Teach us to walk strong in these days. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to talk to you today about recognizing God. And then once with this understanding, I will take you back and we're going to read and listen again to what Jesus said in the text. So here we go. If you met God, would you recognize him? You might say, well, of course I would. He's an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne with a brilliant light shining around him. And there are angels who worship before him day and night. But that's only the way people picture him. It's not the person himself. What if there were no beard or throne or light or angels? Could you still recognize him? What if he took on the form of a normal man? And you met him in one day standing on a street corner. Would you know it was him? If his voice were normal, there were no supernatural signs taking place around him. What would you look for? What would you what would tell you that there was something about this person that was different from any other man you'd ever met? I think I would see the difference in his eyes and hear it in the tone of his voice. And if I had to pick one quality that would set him apart from all other men, I believe it would be his love. A love that was instantly familiar. Because I felt that love in various ways over my entire lifetime. Have you? I mean, think about it. Even before you knew his name, before you knew anything else, have you had... Encounters with God, places where there's some, something he protected you, he showed up, he was there, someone was there in that moment. How many say I've had that? Virtually everybody. Let me ask this question. How many of you have had uh, divine protection? You, there were moments where, in fact, if it weren't for something that happened, you'd be dead. Hold your hand up. Boy, I'm glad he showed up because I wouldn't have a soul in this room <laughs> right now. Did you see how many hands went up? It was the same thing last night. Isn't that interesting? I had, I had a person come up and give me a couple of stories of it happened, and I'm still, I was pondering on the way down here, going, how on earth did God do that? He, he literally saved her life in the most dramatic sorts of ways. I, I shared this last night, so I might as well today. Uh, I'm just thinking, how much, the point is this, and I'm going to be arguing this point. I don't think anybody on planet Earth doesn't have God at work in their lives. You know, we think, well, maybe in a Christian nation. No, no, anywhere on planet Earth. Uh, Anywhere on planet Earth. Uh, God has been at work. Uh, I'll, I'll say it later, but in him we live and move and have our being. And he loves every single one with an equal, full hearted love. Do you understand? So he's reaching out to every child that's born. He's reaching out to every person. He's drawing everyone. He doesn't neglect any. He's a, he's a God of justice. And so his great heart is reaching out to all. And he has, and when I asked you and I said, who's, who's been miraculously protected? Who's, who's had something happen to you? You all raised your hands. Isn't that interesting? Uh, here's an example. I mean, if it were not for God, I, I know I and I think my family would be dead. There's just no question about it. I was, I was coming down the mountain when I first got up here. Uh, coming down uh, from Stevens Pass from skiing, I, I wanted to learn to ski, and so I'm taking. I had I had uh, one of my daughters and her friend in the back seat, and then I 
I, I was driving the car. We, we, had, you know, we came up here with, uh, we had this little white Subaru, and, and it uh, only had two-wheel drive, and uh, it had reasonably bolt tires. And uh, as I got up the mountain, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I'm, but I'm taking us up skiing. And uh, we're coming down the mountain, and it's snowing so heavily that the snow goes all the way down the mountain. Have you been in those situations? And so the, it had snowed so heavily that you couldn't see the road. I mean, you, there was no evidence of a road. It was just this white, and you sort of drove where you thought it might be, you know, and hoped it was something under you. And so I'm being careful. But also one other problem, is, and that is that my defroster had broken. So that... Uh, uh, I mean, this is an old car, and, and so I'm, I have a space that big in the corner of the window, <laughs> and, a, and a sweat sock, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to do that, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm driving like this, and, and I'm thinking, if I get out of this, I'm getting a car, you know, God, just get me down. So I'm, as you come down, the, the, there was a place where the road, this is... Uh, turned it kind of went out and then went into a bridge and one of those kind of railway trestles bridges over the river over a river and uh, as the car is coming and I'm, I'm coming along this corner it simply lost traction entirely and it just began to drift sideways right straight out of the corner and into the 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 the, the edge of that railway trestle and we're headed right sideways into it have you been in those moments where there's, you're going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And then and suddenly you, you, inside you go, oh, we're going to have an accident. Here it is. You know, you've, you've, you've decided we're done. Okay, well, I'd pass that point. <laughs> it was like, okay, here we go. Oh, Jesus. You know, and, but I called out, Jesus. Yeah. And that car, so help me, went, Ding! and then it's going back now into the road, into the, in, right into the bridge. I mean, the, 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 the thing through the bridge sort of at a sideways angle the other way with oncoming traffic. And so I Jesus! And, then, and, and I hit, and it's, it's just like the car bumped. It wasn't like we kind of, anything went boom, and we go right back and straight through. And we pull out the other side, and we're all just... I'll bet the other driver was too. And, and you, you looked at that, and he's like, it's kind of like... We're all alive. How did that happen? Just stunning. Have you had those moments? I, I want to suggest that the love of God and the presence of God and the working of God has been there in our lives and is all over the planet all, of, all the time. God is at work. I think I would see the difference in his eyes and the tone of his voice. I said that. I set him apart. Uh, I felt that love in various ways over my entire lifetime. I believe I would recognize the heart of the one who res rescued me on several occasions and was near to me in some of my darkest hours. I believe I would recognize in his voice the same gentle confidence I heard when a still, small voice spoke to my spirit and comforted me, guided me, or encouraged me when I most needed it. What I'm saying is this. If I met him on the street in the form of a man, I don't believe I would be meeting a stranger. I believe I would recognize a friend. How about you? Do you think you would recognize him if all the glorious outward signs of his divinity were hidden? Because the Bible says God is near to every human as close as our next breath. And that's true no matter when or where a person is born. Listen, and would you read this out loud with me? God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist." Where did Paul, who, who, Paul spoke that, right? Where did he say that? Anybody remember? Mars Hill in Athens. He spoke that in a city which at that time in its history claimed to have more statues, more public statues of their gods than citizens. They had more, more statues than people. 
in this, this ferociously pagan city. I mean, and they're, the god they worship, the gods they worship, I mean, just endless ones, are just vulgar, disgusting situations. I won't go into them. Uh, but you've got all of this kind of thing. And in the middle of that, Paul looks at this crowd of people who's gathered, and he says, he's, as, he's so near, you could reach out and touch him. And he wants you to. He has been with you. In you, you live and move. You're in his presence like a fish in water. He's around you. If you would, and he wants you to reach out and touch him. He's talking to people who have no idea of the true God and saying he is there for you. So I actually believe no one would be meeting a stranger. Every person everywhere would have some memory of that love and that voice. The difference would be in the way they responded. Some would be glad to see him. Others would be afraid or angry. With this understanding in mind, let's listen to the explanation Jesus gave to his disciples as to why they would be persecuted. Now, John 15. I'll start at verse 18, and then I'm going down and to chapter 16, verse 3. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If, the, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word... They will also, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. In other words, because you are mine, because you come in my name, uh, you do what I ask you to do, you speak what I ask you to speak, because they do not know the one who sent me. Would you say they do not know the one who sent me? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. It's been exposed. The heart, their heart has been shown for what it is. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. It would not be, it would not be recorded. It would not be exposed. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in, the, in their law. They hated me without a cause. Who is he talking about primarily? When he talks about the world here in this context, who is he, who is he referring to? The religious leaders of the, of, of, of the, of the situation, yes. You've got to remember something when it came to this whole, whole deal. M masses of people followed Jesus. Masses of Jewish people followed Jesus. Uh, men, women, young and old. Uh, even among the Pharisees, a large number were believing in him and had already gotten, you know, had moved over to follow him. So it isn't that everybody is against him, but there's this religious leadership, in particular, the high priest, who is, again, uh, of this family who bought, basically, the high priesthood originally from, from uh, people from Alexander the Great. I mean, it, it, it's a corrupt, corrupt situation. It's not the old business of, of, of the proper uh, priests of Israel. So you've got this kind of, you've got this horrible religious leadership, and that's who he's who he's particularly talking about. So he quotes here from the, from the Old Testament where, where the, the passages talk about religious people who go to the temple and offer all these sacrifices, but at home they're offering to other gods. You know, and and uh, then they hate the righteous man or woman who loves the Lord. And they mock them they, for their passion. They hate them for their, for their devotion. So that's what he quotes. Now, now chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So he's given them an example. Here's, here's what's coming to you guys. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Would you read verse 3 aloud? These things they will do. Because they have not known the Father or me. Why did Jesus take the time that night to describe in detail the opposition that his disciples would face? Let me remind you where we are. In this passage in John, we are right now, we are, we are outside, I believe. 
We are somewhere on the east side of Jerusalem, probably outside the walls. We are in a full moon. It's Passover night. We are within two hours, probably, of him being arrested uh, by the, the temple police. He is putting into his disciples in this last moments. He's just pouring into them, telling them essential things. And so they're huddled somewhere in the moonlight, uh, maybe in a vineyard, uh, on their way to the Kid, across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. So he's talking to them and pouring his heart out to them. So why did he take the time at that moment to do that? Here he answers the question, and we learn from his answer that he did not want them to be surprised or confused by persecution. He says, it's going to come to you. It's going to come and you're going to get persecuted for me. Don't be surprised or confused by that. When trouble arrived, he didn't want them to falsely assume that God had failed to protect them or abandon them for some reason. And, and stop and put yourself in that position. If you're persecuted and all of this trouble is coming against you because of your Christianity, wouldn't you ask the question, God, either, God, what did I do? Or, hey, I'm serving you. I'm trying to be faithful to you, and all of this is coming against me. Where are you? Why aren't you protecting me? Why are you letting this happen? Yes? That's what he's trying to deal with. That could lead them to doubt God or fall under condemnation. So he said to them, these things I have spoken to you so that you may not be caught in a trap. It does not say stumble. There's another word for that. But because it's often used, associated with stumble, they stuck that in. But it says not be caught in a trap. If they misinterpreted what was happening to them, the devil could deceive them and capture their minds. The question, why are people persecuting me, can still be a very dangerous one. A wrong answer to that question can undermine our faith in God or our confidence that he loves us. If a person assumes that persecution they are facing is a form of punishment from God for some sin they committed, a wedge of shame can be driven between that person and God. See, we always ask the question, why? And boy, is that a dangerous moment, the answer we give. Jesus was very aware of these dangers. So that evening, he carefully warned his disciples and us about the trap the devil would try to use to ensnare them. So no doubt would linger in their minds about what sort of persecution he meant or who would be the primary source of that persecution. Jesus provided an example of what was about to happen to them. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. And it's, 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 a, it's one word. It's one big packed word. And it's a formal word. It means to prohibit them from participating in the religious activities of Judaism. It's excommunication. What they were going to do is say, you can't, you can't be part of a Sabbath service. You can't go to the temple. You can't go to the synagogue. You have no part in the religious activities. You are now outside the, the spiritual community of Israel. It's, a, it's excommunication. But an hour is coming in which everyone who kills you may think by that act he is presenting an offering of worship to God. The implications of that statement are profound. In spite of the fact that his disciples were soon to receive great power in prayer, would perform mighty miracles, or that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and surrounded by the love of the Father and the Son, they would be given no promise that they would escape persecution. I almost wrote a sermon called The Missing Promise. We've got all these promises. You know, he'll protect us and he'll be with us and he provides for us. And hallelujah. But there is one promise that's missing. That we will be protected from persecution. Now, let me be careful here. He's not talking about sickness. He's not talking about, uh, you know, uh, troubles and all of the effects of life. He's talking about where there is a reaction to the Christ in you. Why doesn't he promise that? Because we are on a battlefield, people. This is a battlefield, and there is a strong man, and he holds the souls of men and women. And to get them out of that requires often confrontation. It requires great prayer. It requires the boldness to stand up and say what has to be said in moments. It requires all of that because there's this battle for souls. And you have to go in and take the strong man's treasure. And the strong man's not going to let him go. Don't we wish that weren't the case? I'll tell you, God wishes that weren't the case. But it is. We've given, the human race has given itself into the control of a monster. 
And so there is persecution. There is assault. This is part of who we are. And he's, that's what he's warning him about. Instead, if they faithfully testified about him, they could be certain that they would be persecuted for all the reasons just mentioned. The sad fact was that those individuals who were about to attack them didn't know God. They were very religious, and by that, by the, and, and that by their actions, they thought they were, they were pleasing God. But they had failed to understand his true character. It, the God they were serving existed only in their minds. Jesus described their condition this way, and they will do these things because they did not know the Father or me. A person who knows the true God has discovered that he is kind and merciful. They understand he loves people and longs to rescue the lost. They have learned that he is compassionate, so it's not surprising to them that he would heal the sick or deliver the oppressed. One of the things that made these religious leaders the most angry with Jesus was what? He healed people. And what was, the, what was their complaint usually? Wrong day. Yeah. What do they do? What? You know, so in their minds, it would have been far better to leave a woman who was stooped like this for 18 years in that condition rather than, oh, do work by saying, woman, be healed and cast that thing out of her and let her stand up. They were outraged, outraged because they didn't know the heart of God. Do you follow? Yes. Nobody who knows the real one would think that. Because they know the real one to be kind and compassionate. Not some nitpicker. But someone who loves people. Yes, he has righteous standards. And by not working on the Sabbath, he's trying to get you and me to sit down on a day and spend time with him and with each other. Perfectly makes wonderful sense. It's a great gift to us. And turned into something ridiculous. So we take that and we, and we want to kill the man who took... A man whose arm was like this. And they're all glaring at him. And he says, stretch out. In front of all of this, his eyes were snapping. It says he was angry at the time. He says, stretch out your hand. And the man reached out his hand. Do you see the difference? He says, if they knew the real God, they wouldn't feel that way. You can't. Because they'd understand. That's him. That's him. When such a person met Jesus, they would soon recognize in him the heart of the God they had come to know. His ways would delight them, not offend them. In this statement, Jesus is explaining this to his disciples. He said those who would attack them didn't know God. But their violent reaction showed that theirs was not an innocent form of ignorance. It was the ignorance which results from deliberate choices to keep God at a distance. Did you, did you follow what I, I said? This is really important. You, there are people who just don't know because they don't know. But, there are, but the Bible says there's a whole lot of people who don't know because they don't want to know. Because they, they I'll, t I'll tell you, people are perfectly happy to talk about God and religion and all sorts of spiritual stuff so long as the God we're talking about is not a moral God who will hold us accountable. That one they don't like. Anything else is fine. But when you get a moral God who will hold us accountable, our temper, our rebellion, everything goes up in no way. And we're, we're, we're at war with that God. That one, when he starts drawing close, people who want to keep rebelling, they close it off. They, the Bible says they deafen their ears, they blind their minds, and they harden their hearts. That's why you'll notice I often pray, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. I'm going right against that I, I, on purpose. I mean, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. He said that those who would attack them didn't know God, but their violent reaction showed theirs was not an innocent form of ignorance. It was the ignorance which results from deliberate choices to keep God at a distance. It was the ignorance that happens when someone has come to hate the true God, even though they may religiously serve a God they have created in their own mind. A spiritual perspective. The reason every human can perceive God is because he created us in his image. That means you and I are spirits living in a body. So intuitively, we know a great deal more than our five senses can tell us. 
We are able to recognize things spiritually, not just physically. Which is why when someone meets God, their heart knows it, even if their brain doesn't. He is familiar to those who don't know his name. This whole business about these philosophical debates about the existence of God is a ruse. It's bogus. Push anyone off a bridge and they scream, oh God, all the way down. They do. They do. Why? Because it's time to put the phony stuff aside and, and call out on the one you knew perfectly well you've been running away from. That's exactly why. I bet a lot of people get saved on the way down. You know, I, I heard one guy. In fact, I just, I just found this. I heard one guy. He, was, he, was, he, was, he, he had met Jesus as a kid, you know, and all that. But then he got into drugs and he got all that stuff. And, and at one point, he got so despairing, he, he jumped off a roof, you know. And the minute you do that, you know, one second into it, it's like, oh, my goodness, what have I done? You get sober real fast, you know. And so he's on his way down. He's crying, oh, God, you know. And he, and he hooked on the, the flagpole. <laughs> he did. And on the way down, the Lord said, I've never left you. And he hit the flagpole. And was, and was saved by that. I never left you. You see, we go through these games in the brain. I'm saying, you were created in God's image. You are a spirit. You are an eternal spirit. From the point of, create, uh, of the moment of conception. You aren't immortal. But, you're, I mean, but you are, actually, I should say it the other way around. You are now immortal. You will exist forever. You are not eternal. Only God is eternal. But the moment you were created, you're... you're you're, you're here forever. So your spirit. So you're, in, you're in him you live and move and have your being. You know intuitively a great deal. A great deal. Even if the head doesn't understand it. The spiritual perspe- this spiritual perspective on the human heart is why Jesus can make a statement like this about people who reject him. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Or this. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Again, it's a deliberate uh, ignorance. These he's speaking particularly about religious leaders. If indeed everyone can spiritually recognize God when they meet him, then why is there such a difference in the way people react? Why are some people glad to see him? And why do some pretend they don't know him? God in human flesh. I'm sure you've recognized by now that the the question I asked at the beginning of this lesson has already been answered. God sent his divine son Jesus from heaven to become a normal, unimpressive looking man. 750 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah described his physical appearance this way. Would Would you read this out loud with me? He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Meaning, if you met, if we were there in in, in Israel when Jesus was walking uh, and ministering in, in the flesh, you would have not, you would have, if you saw him, he looked just like a normal man. He wasn't particularly stunning. He wasn't, you know, our pictures of Jesus are what? I mean, you always got him in some white robe and incredible hair. And, you know, and, 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 and say, so here's this kind of individual. You could have passed him in a market and not even looked twice. Isn't that interesting? It was who he was. That made the greatness. Isaiah says this. He said he had no stately form or majesty that we should look at him. Nothing that we should be attracted to him. He, he, before that he said he, he grew up like, like, a, like a root out of, out of parched ground. Out of poverty. He comes out of, of a He uses the word for a shoot that comes up out of the root. Not even the trunk of the real tree. He's just a shoot that comes out of the root. Here, here's our savior. It's who he is. 
So when people met Jesus, there was nothing about his appearance that told you who he was. But his spirit was the eternal son of God, who in all ways is exactly like his father. So when people met Jesus, in effect, they met his father. And some loved the person they met. Some of the most unlikely people wanted to be near him whenever they could. I mean, think of it. Who wanted to be around Jesus a lot? What kind of people drew to him? Tax gatherers, sinners, prostitutes, um, drunkards, gluttons. Who? Children. Chil yes, they did. Children loved him. And parents want their, wanted to the, bring in their kids, you know, bless my child, bless my child. Notice common people. People with all kinds of failures and struggles. What did they feel? Why would you, why if you were a sinner, would you draw to this guy? Because you sense in him what? You sense in him the true heart of God. He's merciful. Oh, he's holy. He's pure. He's, he's a righteous man. But he's merciful. And I see love in his eyes. When I listen to his voice, it's not harsh. He's not an angry man. Oh, he, he's awful angry at, at when they, people keep other people away. He loves us. I can feel that. And so, so people with all kinds of history draw to him and get close to him because they sense he loves them. Even if their brain didn't understand, their heart recognized an old friend. Others, however, reacted very differently, not with boredom or indifference but with a strange hostility. You'll notice nobody yawns around Jesus. Nobody's <laughs> bored. Nobody goes, whatever. You don't have that. They're either wanting to kill the guy or they're wanting to make him king. I mean, you've got, there's nothing in the middle. They saw the same eyes, heard the same voice, even watched the same miracles, but their reaction was hatred. Here's how Jesus explained these different reactions. This is an extremely important passage right here. It's out of John 3. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. Ah, there's the reason. For everyone who does evil, in other words, and that's in a, meaning ongoingly choosing, wants to practice bad stuff, hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now we're back to the moral God who holds us accountable. They don't want to draw near a God who's going to tell them to stop doing things they want to do. It's rebellion. We may play games about, I don't believe in God, or whatever. Bottom line, I don't want him telling me to stop. That's What's going on in the heart? But he who practices the truth. In other words, the person, the man or the woman who is trying to draw near the true God, looking for God, has an honest, sincere heart in this, is doing what they know to do. Honestly trying to draw near the, the true God. Who practices the truth. There's that phrase I used last week, does truth. Comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Meaning that he's been doing stuff in the Lord all along trying to draw near. Based on that statement, there is no such thing as a person who is completely ignorant of God. Those who have been living in rebellion to him and want to continue desperately try to avoid him. So he won't tell them to stop doing certain things. But those who have been trying to please him draw close to him because they recognize him and want, him, want to be with him. Uh, do you recognize the name Luis Palau? Yes. He was a, a, I think he still is, a very, very good evangelist. When I was teaching at the Bible college many years ago, they invited Luis Palau to come and speak to the student body. And, and we went into Angela's temple, and they filled the place um, with people. I mean, and, and, and um, I, I vividly remember something he said. And it, it marked me. I mean, it was one of those like, of course, as he said it. And he said, I've traveled all over the world. And he, and he had, and I think he still does. He said, I've been all over the world, and I've talked to people in on every, most, most of the nations of the world, that kind of thing. And he said, here's what I've discovered. He said, you will never meet a person anywhere on the planet who has not already had an encounter with God. 
You will never meet a person anywhere on planet Earth who has not already had an encounter with God. He said, you need to know that when, you're, when, you're, when you want to share him with others. They have already had those moments. That's what we were talking about earlier. They've already had those things. They've already have a sense. He's there. Their spirit is already awake to the fact that he exists. Jesus in us. Would you turn with me to Matthew 25? We're going to get there in a second. I'm going to read this first. But Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to start at um, verse uh, 31. Matthew uh, chapter 25 contains three powerful sections each of which tells us how Jesus is going to judge different situations when he returns to rule the earth. The first section, verses 1 through 13, tells us he will look to see if our faith in him is still burning in our hearts or did it extinguish while we were waiting. What, what, what's, that, what's that passage? It's the parable of the ten virgins. Remember with the, the lamps of oil? Uh, will the fire still be burning when the bridegroom comes? Very, very clear meaning. Will faith still, living faith in him still be burning when the bridegroom returns? We need to keep adding oil while we wait. Some had oil, some didn't bother with it. Second section, verses 14 through 30, tells us how he will evaluate his servants. It says he will look to see if we faithfully use the resources he gave us to build his kingdom. What was that parable? Parable of the talents, right? He, it's the king who went out and left, left these resources with his servants. He comes back and he said, what did you do with what I gave you while I've been gone? And uh, you know, one took and multiplied five to ten. Another one took two to four. He comes up on the one guy and he says, I knew you to be a hard, harsh man, wanting me to work for you. So I buried it. Here's your, here's your money. And uh, never mind what happened to that guy. All right. And the third section, verses 31 through 46, is a description of one of the ways he will decide who belongs to him and who doesn't. He said the decision will be made by how they reacted to the presence of Jesus within his people, meaning ordinary disciples like you and me. All right, let's, let's, let me read this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the least of these who? My brothers, these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, this passage is traditionally uh, interpreted this way. Uh, I mean, it's customarily done. Um, that this Jesus is watching. And if we're nice to people who are poor and feed them and care for them, that, that, that he'll say, Psh, you're, you're, you're got a great heart, and he'll let you in. That isn't what that says. Now, actually, we are supposed to be kind to the poor, but that would come under, actually, another passage. I would say the parable of the Good Samaritan would be a great one. He's, he's taught us who our neighbor is, and we're to be compassionate and kind and generous. So it's not like that's wrong behavior, but it isn't what this is about. The whole thing keys on who are his brothers. He answers that question, doesn't he? When his, when his mother and his brother showed up outside one of his meetings and they said, his, your mom and brother are here actually to take you home because they think you're crazy. He said, who are my mother and my, father, my brothers? Who are they? And he said, those who serve the God. That's my brothers, my sisters. What he's saying is this. He's saying, when people meet people with me inside them, when people meet 
me through my disciples. When they react, they make choices. When they see it, some of them draw to me and are kind. And some of them aren't. People, we make, we vote, we make decisions instantly, quickly. Think of it. You go, you're working in an office. You, you get a new job. You show up. How long does it take the whole office to figure out who you are? Now, let's assume, let's assume you, you don't wear a t-shirt that says get right or get left or smoking or non-smoking your choice. That, that, you know, you aren't, I mean, let's suppose you're subtle. You know, you're, but you're just, you're just who you are. You're not, out, you're not out in their face. Some people will almost instantly look across the room and not like you. Right? It's bizarre. It's this. It's what we're talking about. It is spiritual recognition. Some people might take a couple of weeks. But they'll figure out who you are. And, and here's, here's what you'll know. Other people... Even though you have said nothing, maybe, about your faith, will come to you and say, can I talk to you for a minute? And for reasons, you, don't, you think, why do you do this? They pour out their life to you. They talk to you. They say, can I talk to you about something? What they're telling you is, I trust you. I recognize your spirit. I see in your eyes. And I hear in your voice. They may not even know it, but him. I sense something about you. And they'll draw to you. How many know what I'm talking about? It's real, isn't it? It's very real. This is a very real dynamic. And Jesus is saying, he's saying, there are people who when they see you, love you because I'm in you. He doesn't mention praying a prayer to receive him or anything like that. Listen, you can pray the prayer and, 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 and it doesn't come out of anything. It was just words. But what God really looks for is the reality in the heart. Do you love me? And those, he, he spots it. He sees it. Even as a boy for me. I didn't pray a prayer. I went, oh, it's God. I want to listen. Bang. He just, the door cracked open and he came into my life without asking. Why? Because he saw a heart that loved him. A heart that wanted him. That God, there's transactions going on. There's a great deal beneath the surface that is taking place. And so Jesus says, when my people came and you saw how they were treated and they were beaten and thrown in prison, some of you took food to them and brought clothes to them. Some of you took them into your home. Some of you were with me when I was hurt and through, through my people. And the way you loved them, because they were mine, you told me how you loved me. Welcome. Did you follow that? It's kind of scary, isn't it? But it's what it says. It, it is, I'm not taking this thing out of context. That's what that passage is about. I guess I'll read the last part. It's the bad part. <laughs> then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into, the eternal, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In other words, they recognized the Christ in you. They recognized, maybe, maybe they knew perfectly well, you're a Christian. And they, and they recognized him in you. And they neglected you. And they abandoned you. And they did it because they hated you. And you did not visit me. And, they them, and then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then these will go away in eternal punishment. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that when you and I follow him as he followed the Father, not just nominal Christianity, we're talking about people in whom Christ dwells. To some degree, people see a difference in our eyes and hear a different tone in our voice. To some degree, they experience his love through us. To some degree, people met him, meet him when they meet us. And the way they will react to us is the same as the way people reacted when Jesus walked on the earth. Some will love you because they recognize him at work in you. And unfortunately, some will reject you or deliberately neglect you for the same reason. And Jesus carefully watches the way each person responds. 
Because that, that, that response reveals their hearts so clearly that there will be those whom he will welcome and those whom he will reject based upon it. I'll tell you, I, I can't hide anywhere. People say, so what do you do? <laughs> I'm a pastor. Boy, do I see this reaction all the time. You know, I go over to, to a, a new neighbor, you know, hi there, welcome, you know. So what do you do? Well, I pastor church. And there's either a, oh, that's nice, or a, oh, yeah. <laughs> we, had a, we had an interesting thing. I mean, this is, this is I saw it the other day. We went to a bookstore, and, and Mary had on her little, she's got this Hebrew um, name, Mary, uh, necklace. And we came up to the check stand, and, and the gal says, oh, is that Arabic? You know, just really friendly and nice. Is that Arabic? And Mary says, no, it's Hebrew. And the, it was just classic. Her account is, oh. <laughs> Wrong God. Do you see that? This, this was not somebody who was, who was evidently Muslim or anything like that. Just, oop, wrong God. We just had an exchange. Those things go on around us all the time. And God observes them. And he knows what they represent. And he knows the heart that's making those choices. What does this mean? First of all, it's very sobering to realize the impact that our life has on others. Even the life of the least of these. We carry Jesus within us, which is a great honor and a great responsibility. People can meet him when they meet us. So we would do well to let his love show through us. And second, it is helpful to understand why people react to us the way they do. Most of us have had the experience of people discovering our faith in Jesus Christ and then reacting positively or negatively. Without understanding what Jesus taught his disciples that night, those reactions can be very confusing. But thankfully, he did explain these things. Being rejected because of Jesus still hurts, but it's not quite as personal. When we realize we're experiencing something much bigger than us. It can, become much, it can become more of a call to prayer for someone than an offense that causes us to grow angry at them. That's how we respond, isn't it? When someone goes cold, when someone gets hot, when you see that reaction, it isn't like, well, you're, you're in trouble. That isn't the point. You say, oh, Lord. And you begin to pray for that heart. You begin to intercede for them. You begin to look for ways to open a door or, or reach out to them. And when we, when we see genuine interest in knowing more, it's, we also realize it's not quite as personal. It's, not, it's the Jesus in us that they are drawn to, not merely our charming personality. So a positive reaction also becomes a call to prayer that God would guide us in how to tell them more about Jesus. Do you and I understand what Jesus taught his disciples that evening? That, that it was God in him and he in us that produces those strange, sometimes hostile reactions. Are we willing to accept that responsibility? Above all, we ask ourselves the question, do people recognize Jesus when they meet me? Would you ask that question? Do people recognize Jesus when they meet me? Because if they do, Jesus says some of them will persecute us. Just like they did him. And he says, that's a good thing. Listen. We want, why don't you read it with me? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, as we listen to you teach us and coach us, and prepare us and say, as you follow me, as I follow the Father, you'll have the same reactions I've had. You will also expose the heart just by your presence. Because I'm there. I'm in you. Lord, we realize that. 
our desire would be that through our eyes, there would be the love of God when people see us. Where there is self-righteousness or anger, where we've become bitter. Lord, it can't, it's hard. And some of us are living in places where we are being really persecuted for our faith on a pretty consistent basis. And we grow, we grow weary and bitter. We can fall into that trap you mentioned. Would you help us understand? Help us understand. And Lord, just we would offer to you, just ramp up our prayer life. Teach us to really intercede for people, for our nation and government and for the church. Lord, teach us to intercede and stand together in, in prayer, believing you to break down walls, and break down false religion, to help people release their rebellion and long to come to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the honor of carrying you within us. We pray you're, you'll, you'll be here, not the tone of our voice, the kindness, not angry. Kind, loving, but truthful. Telling the truth about who we love and who we serve. We say this, Jesus, we are not ashamed of you. We are not ashamed of you. We are grateful to be your sons and daughters. We are grateful to be the least of these, your brothers and sisters. We belong to you. You are our head and our Lord. And may we be light and salt that has not lost its savor in this world we live in. We pray that. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and thank you for a great week ahead, full of saltiness and light, full of your Holy Spirit work in us. In Jesus' powerful name. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.